Welcome to Home of the Brave. I'm Scott Carrier. There isn't going to be a story in today's show. I'm just going to ask for money, like a fun drive. So maybe you want to turn it off now. If you're still there, I want to say thank you for listening to my stories. I don't know how many of you there are, but I know you reach around the world, which blows me away. I'm here in my house, and I push a button on my computer, and my stories end up on your phones and computers, and you listen and sometimes send me money so I can keep making more stories. I take this relationship quite seriously because I know it's both fairly unusual and also a really good deal because it allows me an enormous amount of freedom to do and say what I want. It feels like the best way for an independent producer to operate, except for when I'm running a deficit, like now, and then it's all doom and gloom. Currently, I'm $8,000 in the hole, and I don't think I should go anywhere or plan a big project until I get back in the black. I'd rather be working on the next story, for sure. I feel like I'm unsuited for this part of the job. I'm not interested in marketing and promotion. I'm opposed to advertising. I'm against monetizing my product. I don't want my stories to go viral. I want them to go fungal, like the underground network of mycorrhizal fibers that connect the roots of trees and plants in a forest, sharing food and information, a natural internet of physical connections on a cellular level. I'd rather think of my audience as trees than as data points on a graph. I'd rather grow my audience by word of mouth than by clickbait. So far this year, I've brought in about $60,000 in contributions. One third of this, $20,000, has come from many small donations averaging about $12, but some as high as $100 or $200. The other two thirds, or $40,000, came from large, unconditional infusions of cash from five very generous individuals. Ann Milliken, a friend here in Salt Lake City, Becky Liebman from Olympia, Washington, Yvonne and Melinda Chenard of the Patagonia Company, and Chris Riley of Studio Riley. Without their help, this show would have gone belly up last spring, so I'm eternally grateful to them. But I don't want to ask them for any more money, because I feel like they've done their part and I should be able to find other donors of ample means. Also, I'd feel better if I brought in more small donations from lots of listeners because I think that would be a sign that the business model is working. If you're still listening now, you obviously care somewhat about this show and would like to see it continue and get even better. This is what I want as well and I'm gonna be working on it regardless. I wanna make stories about how to live a good life, a moral life in a world that's falling apart all around us. I was talking with Soledad the other day on the phone and she said the most important thing in her life are her friends. And then she started to cry because she said she would have been croaked off so many times without them. So. I'm gonna do stories that will be like making friends and having friends so that when things go bad, there'll be a network or a lattice of support. Theoretically, as a plan, that's my goal for Home of the Brave. Maybe you want a t-shirt. 
on our website, homebrave.com. We have new Home of the Brave t-shirts designed and hand-printed by the very hip young artist, Alice Carrier, my daughter. Or if you want to make a simple donation, you can do a one-time thing through Stripe or a monthly subscription through PayPal. There's a subscription button in the menu bar, and donate buttons are down by the photos. Go ahead and push one of them and become a Home of the Brave sponsor. I said there wasn't going to be a story in today's episode, but now I think I should play one from the archive. Maybe my most popular story from back in the summer of 1991 when I floated down the Green River in Wyoming and Utah. to confess a profound ignorance about what I'm doing. My preparation for this float trip consisted of buying a canoe and then grabbing a Wyoming roadmap from a rest stop on the drive up. I'd been in a canoe a couple of times and I thought I knew how to make it turn and go straight and I'd seen the river from several bridges I'd crossed on other trips in other years and it was always wide and calm and flat so I thought I could manage well enough. I could have practiced with the canoe gone out with someone who could show me the strokes, and I could have read up on the river, learned about what was in store for me, but I chose not to do these things. When you try to lay things out, try to control what's going to happen, you always end up disappointed or frustrated. At least I do. My first surprise has been that the river at the top was not calm and flat. There were rapids, big rapids. I floated down and camped where I first heard the roar. It sounded like this. This sound was carried on the wind to my tent off and on through the night, and it rained with lightning and thunder. I got up with the sun, made some coffee, and prepared for the worst. I double and triple wrapped everything in garbage bags and tied it all into the canoe. And then I took off my clothes. It would be easier to swim naked, and if I was to drown, I wanted, for some reason, to drown naked. I started down the river praying for all the ants I'd ever stepped on, for all the bugs that had splattered into my windshield. I prayed for dirt and discarded things. I prayed for all my forgotten memories. And somehow I made it. The canoe kept filling with water, but it stayed upright, and I got away with only a couple of welts on my shins. I pulled out in the evening by a bridge. It was a grassy campground area, and a guy was parked there with a smoke-colored 73 Pontiac Catalina, rusted out, the vinyl roof peeled off. He was an old guy with a long beard, a bony, deeply tanned face, dirty clothes, and his car wouldn't start. He said he was a farm and ranch hand looking for work cutting hay but it was still too early in the season. He had some tobacco in a can. We rolled a smoke, and I asked him what he'd been eating. I had spam, and uh, 
potatoes, the crackers. I did have some eggs. Uh, one of my favorite breakfasts is fried potatoes and onions. I fry them together. And then after they get done, put eggs over them and stir them up real good. I don't know if you've ever eaten that before or not, but it's a combination that uh, I kind of like real well. Where, where are you from? Well, I'm originally from Vancouver, Washington, but uh, I've been doing some work in Montana, and that's where my car is registered at now. Where in Montana? Wisdom. That's, I don't know if you ever, if you know Montana that well or not. Wisdom's pretty small. It's one store and one service station. It's in what they call the big hole there, but it's up pretty high altitude. And uh, even as tall as the grass is right here, it's not even getting that much started there yet. See, and the grass here is not very, really too tall here either, though. Strangely enough. Your car won't start hardly. Well, it won't start. I don't feel that I'm in too bad a shape right now, but just just a little bit stranded, it's all. <laughs> the next morning I gave him six bucks, some red salmon, some tomato soup, and I flagged down a pickup to give his car a jump. He said thanks and everything, but I don't think it really mattered to him. He was content waiting there for the grass to grow. It's been easy floating the past couple of days, but the river winds back and forth in these big, long esterns, and sometimes I paddle maybe ten miles to cover just one as the crow flies. Yesterday at sunset, after a long, hot day, I pulled out and camped in a grassy field. I could see a ranch house about a mile in the distance, so the thought of being on private property did cross my mind, but like I say, the house was a mile away, and it was late. This morning, I unzipped the tent, and the grass was covered with frost. My shoes, which I'd left outside, were frozen stiff. So I got up slowly, and just laid around until 10 or 11, looking at the scenery. I saw moose and beaver, bald eagles, sandhill cranes, and many little birds I don't know by name. There was a little one in the willows by the river, and it was bright orange and yellow, like a parakeet you might buy in a pet store. So I was lying around thinking what a great place it was when a truck drove up and parked on a dirt road about a quarter of a mile away and a man, ranch foreman Chuck Davis, came over to chew me out. Mrs. Kellen called me up and asked me to come down and please ask you to leave, which, which I have. The Kellens make their living or, or the operation of this ranch comes from selling hay that you're laying on right now, the, the ground that you've knocked down this side of the river will be, uh, is irrigating right now. I mean, you can look out there just 10 feet away from you and there's water. They're irrigating this, trying to put this up 
as hay. And do you have a lot of trouble with uh, people trespassing? That yes, way? we do, and, and at specific times of the year. Um, hell, I'm a hunter and a fisherman, a sportsman, and I, I like to go and uh, when I get the time to hunt and fish myself. But these people have paid a specific amount of money, and it's a large amount of money. They pay uh, a, a large amount of taxes every year on this ground, and it's their right to, to say who comes and who goes on, on that property. Why do you have to come here? There's, there's ground up there, too, for the public. I mean, the whole from the Green River Lakes, there's millions and millions of acres of, of public ground, of national forest, of state, of state ground. Why do you have to come on this specific piece of ground? It look nice. <laughs> well, yeah, how long will it stay nice? How long will it continue to look nice? If everybody comes down here, and, and I'm not pointing a finger at you, but if, if ten people come through here and nine of them leave beer cans, or even four of them every day, or, or build different fires, and, and their fire ring is here, how long will this look nice? you just got to draw the line somewhere. I apologized for my trespass and was quickly back on the river, paddling through some of the most beautiful country I'd ever seen and keeping my eye on both banks, the two lines I wouldn't cross again until sometime after dark. It was a full moon, and I was brushing my teeth by the river. I was waiting for the big trout to come jumping up out of the water for a dragonfly. I looked upstream, and there was a field of white pelicans on the water, thirty or forty of them, floating down towards me, holding the night, holding silence between themselves. When they were just across from me, when they became shadows in the moonlight, I spit out my toothpaste, and they all took off, pounding the water with their big wings, working hard for airspeed then flying away out over the desert. I started thinking about how I hadn't spoken to anyone in the last three days. There had been men fishing from the bank, but I was afraid to approach them. If I were to have spoken with them, I would have spoken my mind, and there would have been nothing but questions. Do you believe in reincarnation? Why does the speed of light have to be a constant? Can you, by chance, sing like Roy Orbison? So I treated these people as ghosts, and just waved at them as I went by. The man with the dog in the pickup truck was really Abraham Lincoln. His friend fishing was Socrates, and I saw Crazy Horse drawing in the mud along the bank. They come to the river to watch America change. They come because they know that in 100 years the river will be gone or locked away inside concrete. I could have stopped and talked to them about it, but to have heard a story with such an ending, it may have broken my heart. Sandwash is way out in the Utah desert. You drive two and a half hours on a dirt road, and when you get there, it's a big canyon, a dry wash cutting down through shalestone badlands and emptying into the Green River. The river at this point is slow and flat, the color of coffee with milk, and just about as warm. 
If you stand by the river, you might see a great blue heron, a pair of golden eagles, a beaver, an otter. The river is a thin, snake-like oasis. But if you turn away from the water and look back up at the cliffs and barren plateaus, you might think you're now living on a dry, God-forsaken planet. It's just the Utah desert, close to where Reuben Farr buried his cat, close to nowhere. This desert is controlled by the Bureau of Land Management. They manage the grazing permits, and they give out 10,000 floating permits every year to people who want to make the six- or seven-day trip down through Desolation Canyon. There's a BLM ranger stationed there where you put your boat in the water. Her name is Michelle Sturm. She's six feet tall and carries a clipboard. She checks your permit, checks your equipment, first aid kit, extra paddles, life jacket. She jokes around, doesn't give you a hard time, and it's easy to see she's not from around here, that she's on some kind of leave of absence, hiding out in the wilderness. I came off of working with homeless for two and a half years, mentally ill adults and single males, and hungry people in low-income families in downtown San Jose, California and was really just tired and not enough joy in my life. I wanted to be in the middle of nowhere. and um, So, I mean, after I, the first night I was at Sand Wash, I really felt at home and at comfortable. And that, Yeah, this was the right place. And the light and the wind, I mean, the factors that are really important and have bearing on your life um, are real significant factors, things that you have absolutely no control over. For instance, that the wind comes up in the afternoon, that the light is real intense and I put on lots of sunscreen and hide from the sun, and that around two or three in the afternoon you have absolutely no energy whether you want to or not. You know, it just... It just takes it all out of you. And so you rest for about 10 minutes and feel a lot better and drink a lot of water. But then, like right now, there's sort of this nice, gentle, cool breeze. Um, and you can write by the moon at night. At night, these loud, I don't know what they are, sort of airplane-type bugs... But they're, I don't think they're dragonflies, but something else just comes zooming in and like zooming by the bedroom window and checking things out. And the bats are really fun. They come really close. And the hummingbirds come really close. And I hear boaters. And I hear people coming down the gravel road. And that's always kind of a little apprehensive. Whereas I don't know what they want. Are you going to go back to working with home? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. I think you need to have a strong faith and religious belief to do that kind of work. And um, I think I tend to see it more as a political situation rather than a religious situation. And, and so it just really produces more anger than saintliness or something. So you angry what are you upset about well the thing okay the thing that bothers you is that that you and everyone you're working with is doing as much as you possibly can and yet you can't do enough and someone else 
has asked you for something else and you can't do it and you learn to have to say no. <laughs> That's a pretty um, dismal way to operate. You don't want to have to operate always feeling your boundaries and like if, if I just keep stretching and stretching I'm going to break and so I have to protect myself so I don't break and then I let all these people down. Do you see? What you see are shadows in the moonlight, the mouth of a canyon, the eerie shapes of red rock walls, the figure of a tall woman walking home to bed. It happened in Desolation Canyon, a wilderness, a place of natural forces. But there was nothing about the river except a few easily negotiated rapids, nothing about the weather except a strong gust of wind at sunset, and nothing about the night except the pulses of some distant heat lightning. There was nothing to explain the blue plastic ground cloth rolled around the body of a small 16-year-old boy. This plastic set on the floor of a rubber raft the raft pulled up on a beach below a dirt road where the airplane would land. The young friend of the boy asleep on the sand. Bleached blonde hair, necklace, smooth tan skin, a child. This man, an instructor, who came to fly the body out of the canyon. The uh, boy who died was a 16-year-old student, and he died uh, yesterday on the seventh day of the course. He was discovered by a fellow student at his campsite at about 10.50 p.m. with no apparent pulse or breathing and uh, cardiopulmonary resuscitation was performed for 44 minutes. It didn't, as far as you know, the death didn't have anything to do with the river or being on there? I'm quite sure that wasn't the case. Do you have any ideas of what was the, the cause? At this point, no, I don't. I'm sure that the coroner's report will tell us what it was, but I, I, I can't say. I couldn't speculate. What's it like? What, what's it, I mean, I don't know how to ask that question, but what's it like when one of your students die? Traumatic, heartrending for not only the instructors, but the fellow students. It's been a difficult 24 hours to be so. You know, a river has its own space and time. Earth dissolves into water, water into air, and death is like a river. You stand next to it and all the words fall out of your head. Confluence Overlook is a place in Canyonlands National Park, southern Utah. 
you drive through the park and then walk five miles across a desert plateau until you come to a cliff. From there, the crust of the earth falls away and you look down into the canyons, maybe 2,000 vertical feet and three miles on a straight line to where the Green River flows into the Colorado. They come together in the shape of a Y. Both are slow and muddy, the color of milk chocolate, and they are so far below, so far in the distance, they're like tiny veins draining the huge dry mass of desert. Once, a long time ago, my older brother stood there on the rim of the confluence overlook. He had a big backpack and a climbing rope, and he used a Coke can to repel down the cliff. He smashed the can and crammed it into a crack at the edge of the cliff, then looped the rope around it and lowered himself down. Then he walked down to the river, where he wandered around for three days, got lost, ran out of food and water, and was found collapsed or unconscious by two park rangers. So if you had a rope and something to jam in a crack, you could get by the cliff and walk down to the river for a swim. The water is warm and you come out smelling like mud. Nostalgie la boue. If you had a rope, you could go down to the river for a swim, hang out and watch the red sandstone at sunset. But I wouldn't go down without a rope. If you tried and fell, it would sound like this. This is the way the Green River ends from the Confluence Overlook. It becomes thin and distant, unapproachable, like what happens to a dream upon waking. The sun is going down and three families are camped beside a trout stream in southern Utah. The women are talking to each other by the picnic table. The men are watching the children play in the water. Two of the women are sisters. One has just had an affair with a man in Los Angeles. On the phone she swore to her sister that she would tell her husband and insist on a divorce. But now she's thinking she will not say anything ever about the affair and maybe wait a while on the divorce. Her sister is swaying back and forth with a baby in her arms. This morning, the baby stuck her right hand in a cup of hot coffee and cried for hours. Now she's asleep, but her fingers have big balloon-like blisters that will break and heal slowly, leaving long white scars. The third woman is two days pregnant and thinking about taking a nap. Of the men, one is trying to decide when would be the best time to drive into town and call his broker. One is thinking about running up the mountain to smoke a joint and watch the sun go down. The other is looking at the water, wondering if the fish might like a grasshopper. The children are playing and fighting over a toy sailboat. 
The three-year-old boy is soaking wet and nearly out of his mind with possibilities. The five-year-old girl is standing on the bank, making up rules and shouting out orders and dropping lettuce and cheese from her sandwich. There are little birds in the trees and big birds on the rock walls of the canyon, red rock walls in the shadow of the afternoon sun. A dirt road comes around and down and crosses over the stream, and in the pool below the road, a pale snake slides silently into the water and swims to the other side, holding something rather large in its mouth. There are three cars, all white, and there's an Indian, or rather the ghost of an Indian who lived and died in this spot, sitting cross-legged on the hood of the station wagon. This is the beginning of a story. The story is about how the husband realizes his wife has been unfaithful, and it's about how the Indian died, and what the snake had in its mouth, and how the two-day-old life inside the mother grows and is born, and becomes a beautiful young woman who paints the poems of Rilke on the desert blacktop highway. The sun is going down, and three families are camped beside a trout stream in southern Utah. This is the beginning of a story, but there isn't enough time to tell it. Thank you.